coming back from its holiday recess. Both chambers of Congress have a lot of business to take care of before their next one, with nominations and appropriations on the agenda. As always, we turn to Bloomberg government's Lauren Duggan to relay all the details. So we're entering a three-week stretch before the August recess where Congress has a lot to do to make progress on some expiring provisions one this month, some in September, and some by the end of the year. So this is going to be a crunch time for both House Republicans and Senate Democrats to get their agenda through their respective chambers. Um, The big thing this week is going to be on the House side, the defense policy bill, which is always a key piece of legislation every year. Um, And that's probably what's going to dominate that side of Capitol Hill this week as they go through that massive piece of legislation. Yeah. What are some of the ins and outs of negotiating going on there? The bill itself was bipartisan coming out of the the House Armed Services Committee, but what are they trying to figure out the nitty gritty details of? Right. So the final vote in the committee was, as you said, very bipartisan, only one no vote. That, I think, masks some of the disagreements between the Republicans and Democrats on some of the finer points of that legislation. And as we'll see this week, more than 1,400 amendments were filed to be considered. Not all of those are going to make the cut. But some of the ones that have been proposed so far could be flashpoints between the parties, everything from Ukraine aid to DOD and abortion policy and what to do about diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI programs that have been kind of a flashpoint in spending bills and in this authorization bill as well. So I think as that bill hits the floor and people talk about the provisions that are already in the bill, some things like curtailing some DEI policies and then maybe other policies they want to see added, that's going to be potentially a heated debate. And they still have to get a majority from Republicans and Democrats to get that bill through and to get each of those amendments through. So there might be some complicated math as they figure that out. In terms of the broadest picture of the bill, the $886 billion or so that it would authorize, there's agreement there between the House and the Senate on that top line. So that might make a final bill a little bit easier. They're not arguing as much anymore about the defense side of the budget. Uh, But as we see, non-defense spending is still going to be a flashpoint. But this bill has so many provisions in it, so many pages, and is attractive for other issues, even if they're not directly related to defense, that it's going to be a key thing to, to watch this week as that plays out. Yeah, particularly the Pentagon abortion policy. We've already seen that issue have a ripple effect in other areas when it came to congressional defense responsibilities. Are they going to be able to get past that? Because it's been a real sticking point. It has. And in the Senate, I think you're referring to Tommy Tuberville, who's the Alabama Republican senator, former football coach, who has been holding up most DOD nominees while this is playing out with the abortion policy at DOD. So he's he can't hold them up forever. But the steps that Senate Democratic leaders would have to take to overcome his holds, as it were, on each DOD nominee would take a considerable amount of time. A big nomination they have to deal with is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, President Biden sent up a nominee. There's going to be hearings this week. I would assume that they're going to try to push that through as fast as possible. They may even be willing to take the lengthy floor time to process that nomination. But there are a couple of hundred that need to be dealt with that are just languishing right now as long as there's not an agreement to move them faster. So that is still going to play out over the coming weeks. Speaking of Senate nominations, uh, as you mentioned, there are plenty to go about. Uh, What is on the schedule for next week? 
the first vote we'll see is on uh, uh, Tori Small to be the Deputy Secretary of USDA. She's a former House member, is already at USDA. This would be kind of a higher level job for her. That's the first big vote. And then we'll see some others for the head of the Violence Against Women office and then some more judicial nominees on the Senate floor. In the committees, there's going to be a markup on some FCC nominees, so more action there. And then the one that's been in the background, and there's a lot of questions going into this work period, is Julie Sue to lead the Labor Department. That nomination has not been solidified yet because there's questions about some of the Democratic support. With a 51-49 split, they can only afford to lose so many Democrats to imperil a nominee. So we'll be checking again with senators when they're back in town to see what they want to do on that nomination. But it's it's been a tricky one, to say the least, at getting her through. What can you tell me about the Violence Against Women office since, you know, that was President Biden's you know landmark legislation when he was in the Senate? And it's usually been a pretty bipartisan issue. I imagine, you know, the the pick for it to run it is probably not as controversial as others. It might not be, but you know, sometimes what happens here is it's just processing nominations can take time. If any senator has an objection, that can require them to jump through the steps of filing for cloture and then taking the days and the time to get that through. So uh, I'm not 100% clear on the particulars there, but um, this is one that couldn't sail through on a voice vote or unanimous consent. So they're just going through these steps. But uh, often you don't schedule a vote in the Senate unless you think you can win it, um, which is one reason I think that they've held off on, for example, Julie Sue. They haven't been sure they could win that one. But we'll see if that one can clear that hurdle this week in the Senate. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan from Bloomberg Government. And are there any other major appropriations or, you know, even minor appropriations? Whenever you're talking about appropriations, it's usually big dollar figures, but minor in the scope of government spending that are on the uh, House and Senate docket. Not yet to the floor. Um, there's been a good amount of committee activity so far with at least a half dozen or so through the House Appropriations Committee, more through subcommittee. And then we saw two get through the Senate panel before they went on this two-week recess. So they're going to pick up with that again this week, try to process as many as they can. We're seeing so far as that divergence, as I mentioned, with the House still looking to bring down non-defense discretionary spending to fiscal 22 levels. So a cut given that there was a bump up going to 23. And then um, the Senate pretty much sticking to the spending caps that they agreed upon with that debt limit deal that we saw with a flurry of activity earlier this year. So that's one divergence point. Uh, the other is going to be what riders do you attach to this? Um, as I mentioned, DEI issues have come up a lot in the House so far. Also, uh, critical race theory and trying to prevent government funding from being used for that. That language has been in the House bill, not so much in the Senate bill. But as they get to more of these bills, we'll see if the rider language gets more complicated there as well. But September 30th, not that far away. Not a lot of work weeks left before that. So, you know, right now they're talking about full year bills and the all the line items, but at CR talk or continuing resolution discussions may not start in July, but that's always going to be in the back of people's minds. How quickly are they going to have to turn to that and make sure that they can keep the government open after September 30th? Let's talk about an issue that's probably near and dear to a lot of politicians' hearts, uh, since many of them are fans or play it. Uh, what is this I'm hearing about a PGA Tour live golf deal hearing and how much of this is just politicians hoping they can meet some of their favorite golfers? 
I don't think there's going to be golfers at this hearing, but the obviously it was blockbuster news when the PGA Tour and Live Golf, which is backed by a Saudi investment firm or Saudi investment company, I believe it is, announced that they were going to have a deal to come together in one umbrella organization along with, I think, the the European Tour. Um, there's a lot of interest in this because it's foreign money and foreign investment in an American product. Some concerns about that, obviously, among lawmakers who want to know more about it. So we're going to hear from people who are involved in the deal making more than golfers right now. But I think this is the first of many hearings we're going to see. This is in the Senate Homeland Security Committee. I could see the House doing something on this as well, because it obviously provoked a lot of reaction from folks. But um, sports sometimes come to Capitol Hill and you get that interesting cross section. And that's what we'll be seeing, at least in that hearing. Yeah, and it, it's all just about the Saudi money in there. There's no, I know that sports kind of has a little niche carved out where they aren't liable to antitrust regulations, but uh, is that among the concern as well? I mean, I could see that coming up because you have all these differing tours coming together under one umbrella. I'm sure that might be one of the things they bring up. And sometimes that's why Congress pulls them in because of antitrust exemptions. That's why you can get them in front of you to talk about these things. So, um, like I said, not the first sports hearing we've seen on Capitol Hill and undoubtedly not the last, but a big issue for sure. And, you know, I guess we'll see more ESPN and sports desk people kicking around the hill than usual when that one's happening. All righty. Lauren Duggan, Bloomberg government, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that, you that's know? <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.